Imagine a world where every word ever written, every picture ever painted and every film ever shot could be viewed instantly in your home via an information superhighway, a high-capacity digital communications network. In 1996, my parents signed up our family to the World Wide Web. Michael used to work for a big technology company and he encouraged my dad to set us up for the internet. And by this time, I knew what the internet was. I mean, schools had it. I remember going into it, just messing around with it. It sounds pretty grand, but it all comes down to computers communicating. And in fact, that's already happening on something called the internet. You know, I remember going into like ESPN.com or I don't know, Disney.com. Um, just websites from different companies to see what they would have. And this was primitive internet. No social media. Search engines were not dominated by Google. I don't know if you remember Ask Jeeves. You kind of had a selection of it. And most importantly at the time, I felt like there was no personal stakes. Anyone in the world with a computer and a modem to connect it to a telephone line can subscribe to. There are over 20 million people connected up. And one person in particular I know is connected is the American president. You know, a person like myself didn't know how to make a website. Our information wasn't in there yet. It could be hidden information, at least, you know, for a little bit. The only thing we, as a young boy, I was 16 at the time, I knew that you can get porn on it if you could click around. In my memories, I also remember the AOL discs. <laughs> I remember clicking into them and then getting blocked by trying to add a credit card number. You know, something that I didn't have. Uh, so me and my friends begged our parents to get it, saying that this would be a valuable educational tool and for research it would be awesome. My parents also fancied me as a person who liked and was good at new tech, uh, a passion I would continue up to today. So they saw the changing tides and got it. And one of the first things I did was find a picture of Alicia Silverstone and printed them off, and hid them in my room. I was 15 years old. It was all teenagers go through. I wanted to find a sense of freedom. But if my first indications of what I did on the World Wide Web, I think I wanted to find something else. Ew! Get off of me! Ugh, as if! My sister and I also became kind of Website aficionados. We started our own websites. Mine was about the Edmonton Oilers, and my sister's was about the show Friends. And my sister's website actually got a lot of hits. We had to learn HTML to do that. I mean, those wild times. Then we started messing around on chat sites. And let me tell you, this is where I found my digital drug. My sister, too. I used to spend hours and hours on these chat rooms. I found a burgeoning community of people who like hockey, like I did. And we did talk about hockey, but we also talked about other things. We talked about our lives. We flirted. We found relationships. And these relationships were with real people on the other side. 
people with desires and fears, opinions and dislikes, strengths and insecurities. And I felt like I was talking to people who finally understood who I was. To a teenager like myself, this was like a drug. And I wasn't the only one either. I remember my sister and I getting into huge arguments because we couldn't use the internet at the same time and we had to fight for who got to use it. What I remember most from this time is that I found a way to get my voice heard and people who would hear it. I also remember the anxiousness and fear of losing that community and what people thought of me, as well as my opinions of what I was saying. Remember, this was Web 1.0. And remember, I was a teenager. And yet I found this community intoxicating. So when the phenomena of Web 2.0 and the rise of social media and the anxiety around how these communities proliferated from there, as well as the misinformation that happened, I didn't find it surprising. There's a common phrase when people talk about social media, is that they're not selling products. We are the products they sell. And this is true, 100%. However, back in the early 90s, we weren't concerned about us as a product. I may be naive, but I don't think companies were thinking about selling our data like products. However, what they found out was that our emotional needs were only a click away. And that the longer we stayed with them, the better it was. And that the internet wasn't just a mall where we could go from one store to another. It was a large town with shops, places to gather, places to govern, and places to argue. Where we go from community to community. And those communities were run by the private companies that gave us the illusion that we could go in and out as we pleased. But they knew how addictive it was to find your community and keep us there. We were sold just like all marketing, emotions, and as a teenager and then later a young adult, I was hooked. I wasn't the only one. That story was my digital awakening. That was more than two decades ago. And by now, the internet is now not just a novelty, but a significant part of our life. So much so that many people consider access to the internet a human right. The UN in 2011 in a Human Rights Council said this about internet access. By explicitly providing that everyone has the right to express him or herself through any media, the Special Rapporteur underscores that Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Covenant was drafted with foresight to include and to accommodate future technological developments through which individuals can exercise their right to freedom of expression. Hence, the framework of international human rights law remains relevant today and equally applicable to new communication technologies such as the Internet. But right now, we as a society have seen how the Internet has shaped our lives, in helpful ways and in evil ways, felt by everyone. And now we're seeing the repercussions of an infinitely connected world. And because this is a podcast about masculinity, we're going to focus on the specific ways in which the Internet has shaped the way men of all generation act, feel, connect, and communicate. So on the season of Modern Manhood, titled Man vs. the Machine, we're going to explore the ways in which modern technology has shaped how men see the world, shaped the world, and shaped themselves.
Big Tech understands a very subtle truth about human relationships. They are subscriptions. Every relationship in our lives is a subscription. It's a commitment, a contract, a promise, an emotional one. Julio Vincent Cambuto. One of the things I realized as I was thinking about my personal relationship with the internet is how complicit I was with it. I willingly gave away my time to it. The return I thought was connection and my personal space on the web where I could say wherever I wanted. A lot of people use this term when describing the first years of the internet, that it was the wild, wild west, that people were claiming space in it and the rules were fast and loose. Not only that, it coincides how people were all aboard in regards to capitalism. You know, the train keeps going and if it hurts some people, so be it. We need to keep going. The connections I made with people on the chat rooms were real and fake at the same time. But I didn't know it back then. It was like reading a book when somebody describes an amazing world and all you have you do is your imagination to make it real. And of course, your imagination was going to make it how you wanted it to be. Real life is complicated, though. I met some of those people in those chat rooms in real life, and my expectations of who they were never matched up with who they actually were. This phenomenon happens still today. Just ask anyone who's used an internet dating app. You know, an April 2022 survey of 518 to 54-year-olds by the data analytics company Singles Report concluded that nearly 80% said they experienced emotional burnout or fatigue with online dating. This burnout could happen due to many factors, but I'll let you know that this is the technological phenomenon. However, this gap of expectations and reality in the internet relationships and how we approach offline relationships is due to what uh, Julio Vincent Cambudo in his book, Please Unsubscribe, thanks, calls a click-up economy in which our emotional needs, capitalistic needs, can be solved only a click away. And yet this speed, this unlimited nature of this economy has hurt how we look at class, labor, and ourselves. By staying connected at all times with social relationships through social media, it has allowed big players to know who and what and how we should be marketed to. Not only that, we're forced to connect with these people at all times. We and our humanity have been taken out of the process entirely, so much so that a computer and a commercial system designed around its constant use tells us that we are still in a relationship with every human with whom we've ever come into contact, automatically, unconsciously, forever. Automating the renewal of thousands of social relationships, daily, they're still all there tomorrow morning, floods our lives with more and more noise and can bog us down in a perpetual swamp of toxic tethers, i.e. more bullshit. Because the more people we know and the more we want to interact and engage, the more opportunities there are for the big forces to broker that engagement. Julio Vincent can Don't forget to smash that like button. <laughs> Only a small percent of my viewers are actually subscribed to my channel, so I'd appreciate it if you subscribe. Technologies create the ways in which people perceive reality, and that such ways are the key to understanding diverse forms of social and mental life. Neil Postman in Technopoly. All of this sounds bleak, like a weird techno-dystopia. But don't fret, I'm not going to doom and gloom you, because honestly, I, I, I kind of like technology. I follow tech news all the time. I listen to, watch, and read tech sites to find out what new cool tech products there are. I, I like being a first adopter to things if, uh, if I had the money for it, uh, but I'm not afraid to try new things out. 
even if it's at the risk of my free time. So I understand technology, but it's also I'm not a person that wants to be a hermit out in the woods, untethered to new cool stuff. That's that's not me. But lately, I've noticed the anxiety that a lot of men have about their relationships, their mental health, and their lives. And not only that, society in general is frankly worried about how men are doing. Just because we live in a patriarchy, how men are doing is going to affect everyone else directly. I mean, if you don't understand this, think about this. Women have been going through massive reinventions of what it means to be a modern woman for more than a century now. And some men have not even noticed because as a patriarchal society, these reinventions don't affect society as a whole. A lot of people just think it's something going on in the background. But when men are struggling, men, we all see it and we all feel it. We see it in the policies that are made to quote unquote strengthen our rights. We see it in how some men respond to the changing tides of identity. And we see it in the violence that happens in the real world. Everyone can see it. We see it in the influence that all of a sudden get famous. If my woman replies to a man on Instagram, she's, if she likes another man's photo, she's not fucking. I, inf- I inflict, I expect absolute loyalty. We see it in the political violence that gets propped up. It's Saturday, December 19th. The year is 2020. And one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. In the shootings in our schools. Police say Butler, seen in this photo posted to social media before the shootings with the caption, Now We Wait, killed one student and hurt five others, including the principal, before taking his own life. See it in the language some of our young boys use. Fuck the woman! Fuck the woman! What? No, no, no. No, no, wait, wait, wait. We love women. We love women. We love women. But not not like transgender. Yes, sir. We love everybody. No, no. We see it in the changing attitudes of a lot of men. The homophobia, the transphobia, the anti-feminist, and the people that prop them up. Honestly, truthfully, I can't blame all of this on the internet and technology. That would be naive. But the internet, run the way it is right now, has a nasty way of propping up these type of languages run by specific type of people. And those messages are delivered instantaneously. The internet didn't make the culture fully, but it chooses which parts of the culture get spread out farthest and widest. And it has had some measurable consequences. And I can think we can put that blame on a specific type of person. The technocrats. So what is a technocrat and technocratic thinking? In its most general terms, a technocrat is an individual who holds a position of power or influence due to their technical expertise or backgrounds. Which on its face sounds ideal. Someone who is a doctor should be capable of a minister of health, for example. Or someone who's an expert as a teacher should be the best at making educational policies. However, this runs into how do we solve societal problems using technocratic thinking? This approach often emphasizes the use of technical expertise and empirical data to guide policy and decision-making processes, and has been criticized as elitist and non-democratic as it relies on the decision-making skills of a select few individuals deemed, maybe incorrectly, as experts. It also looks at societal problems as things to quote-unquote hack 
or problems only solved using technology or only through data, rather than looking at people and society through a human-based decision and design. Especially if we understand that some data is biased, and the experts themselves are humans, and therefore biased themselves. This is mostly evident when we realize that a lot of the people that consider themselves technocrats are men. People like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates. But this has a very historical process through many different types of governments. It's been a problem. Karl Marx surmised that. The hand mill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill society with the industrial capitalist. The same men who establish their social relations in conformity with the material productivity produce also principles, ideas, and categories in conformity with their social relations. Now, Karl Marx is not alive today, but if he was, he might have continued this quote with, quote, the computer gives you society with the technocrats. Now, another Marx, Canadian tech critic Paris Marx, who runs the podcast Tech Won't Save Us, I'm sure agrees with him. He saw it in his hometown and the invention of Uber. I was always really interested in transportation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from Newfoundland, so it's a place that's very car oriented where yeah. it's difficult to get around without a car. Um, and in 2013, or I guess around 2012, I started to travel a lot more um, and actually see how things worked in, in different parts of Canada and different parts of the world. Um, and just thinking about like, you know, why is it that so many of our communities in North America are so car oriented, whereas, you know, there are other communities where you can really get around in other ways on public transit and things like that. So that was one thing. Um, and and by that time, you know, Uber was growing. Uber was becoming more common. You know, there were pushes for like smart cities and things like that. Um, and I quickly became very critical of those ideas for how like transportation and cities should be improved through technology. Um, rather than actually trying to like, you know, resolve these things through political decisions. It's interesting when you open your eyes about technology and how it truly informs our daily life. And then you dig a little deeper and see the forces that form this technology and how we're almost hypnotized by this. What Paris described, the rise of Uber, I saw that in my hometown as well. And I remember very distinctly the quotes that came from our mayor at that time when he went to Toronto and saw how Uber worked in that city. That was almost 10 years ago, in 2014. In a post from 2015 from, from Don Iveson, then the mayor of Edmonton at the time, he reflects on how Uber came to town. And he says, and I quote, I have been accused slash championed as a nerd in the past, partially because of my love for technology and all the day-to-day -day benefits it can provide. In principle, Uber is a wonderful concept, but as counsel, you can't simply ignore the fact that Uber exposes both driver and passengers to unnecessary risk, operating as they do outside the law. The unnecessary risk that Iveson was thinking about was of safety, but it wasn't of infrastructure. It wasn't more of a public transport. It was thinking that Uber was working outside of the law. Yet, the invitation of this new technology allowed the change of the culture of how we view people like taxi drivers. We don't view them as a profession or a career. We now view them as gig workers. And Uber, this technology company, is part of the transportation in and around Edmonton and in many cities. It infiltrated our culture and in a way changed the way we viewed people. 
as Paris notes. You know, as kind of 2015, 16 start to come around, it becomes clear that those promises were not accurate. Um, and those technologies were not as advanced as people in the tech industry made them seem to be. Um, and that actually the impact of those technologies was not to wipe out jobs, but to allow companies to distract us while they implemented new technologies into their workplaces, companies right. like Uber or Amazon or whatever, to degrade and de-skill and devalue the labor and the work that was going into those sorts of professions. Like Caputo said, it turned the honest view of the taxi driver into a subscription, not a career, something we can opt in and out of. And even though the idea that anyone can be a taxi driver devalues the idea of a person who knew the city like the back of their hand, who, if you asked where they served the best tacos, would send you to a hole in the hole which indeed had the best tacos. All of that is lost. That human interaction is substituted by convenience. I think the tech industry really thrives in making us believe that whatever new product um, it is kind of deploying into the world is going to transform everything and that we need to kind of completely reorient everything that we're doing, you know, how we think about the world, how we potentially regulate these things, if we regulate them at all, um, around, you know, whatever it is that they're proposing in this moment. We'll be right back. Okay, but what does this have to do with gender or men? Now, as you know, I'm a big believer that a lot of the material causes are causes of systems that are driven by culture. And one of the biggest promises of the internet is the opening up of culture in the internet. And that we would communicate with each other in ways we have never seen before. Because we would communicate with everyone at any time and in real time. However, social media and the internet itself was not made by the diversity of culture. It was made with a specific user in mind, a 20 to 30-year-old white American male. In fact, a lot of new technology has this user base in mind. In the book, The Future of Feeling, Building Empathy in a tech Success World, writer Caitlin Ogolik-Phillips says this specific fact. Excluding women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, and people with disabilities from the creation process of tech platforms is in most cases probably not intentional, but including them can be, and often isn't. The result has been that artificial intelligence programs do oppressive things like identify black faces as gorilla faces, eliminate resumes with the word women's in them, and push fake and incendiary articles to the tops of our news feeds. Caitlin Ugolik Phillips. This has also increased how we look at gender throughout the world and flattened it. And through it, the business of tech has now become the business of the world. And the people who run that business, the Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, and the Elon Musks, are men, 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 and men. The business of tech has become the business of masculinity as a whole. And Paris delves on this a little bit further. The core thing there is that I think when we think about the tech industry, we need to recognize that the people who work in the industry are also predominantly men, right? Mm -hmm, and there mm -hmm. are kind of, you know, long historical reasons for why that's the case. You know, if you go way back before the computer was like a, a machine, it was actually a woman. Um, you know, it was women kind of doing the typing and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, and then it turns into the machine and all these women get pushed out of the jobs, especially like, you know, post-World War II and stuff like that. And it becomes this profession that is for men. Now, I knew a bit of this because I saw the movie Hidden Figures. And the way that women have been pushed out of tech will also help us view how the tech world views their products, their consumers, and the society creates. In the tech industry, just like a lot of men view the world, in a risk-taking capacity, is the way tech is brought to us. You have this very male-dominated industry. Um, the people who make a lot of money in the industry tend to be men as well. You know, if you think about the founders and all that kind of stuff, the, the entrepreneurs, um, these are mainly men. And so when you look at all these kind of hype cycles that occur, um, when these technologies kind of boom and when they bust and all this kind of stuff, it's no surprise then that men are kind of on the front lines of adopting these things and pushing them um, because, you know, one, they are in the industry. They are likely more, more often to be developing these sorts of products, you know, and, and working at these sorts of companies. And if you take a reminder of what Julio Vincent Gambudo said, and please unsubscribe, tech also has a weird understanding of relationships. Not just romantic relationships, but just any relationships in general. Quote, every relationship is an agreement. Friends, romantic partners, business partners, mortgage lenders, car dealerships, children of our own, Caputo says. However, tech wants us to keep in those types of relationships at all times, forever. And those relationships are also something we don't have to think about. It's not so much the subscribing to social relationships that's the worst problem. It's the automation of them. We, and our humanity, have been taken out of the process entirely, so much so that a computer and a commercial system designed around its constant use tells us that we are still in a relationship with every human with whom we have ever come into contact, automatically, unconsciously, forever. Hey guys, I don't usually do this even though I say this every video, but if you could like or subscribe to my channel, I'd really appreciate it tech and the internet, for the most part, don't see the full capacity of human relationships. It sees it as code, an element to get somewhere, rather than a mutual understanding of humanity. And if you see this type of relationship that is thrown at in the internet with the understanding of who mostly made the internet, you have a real understanding of what kind of dilemma we're in. Next time on Man vs. Machine. We'll tell you who really is in charge of what is cool online. They take mental care, really. And, and then I checked, and I said, no, there, there were some women, there were non-binaries, but it's a combination of being male-dominated and also the fact that men tend to use space more than women totally. uh, and non-binaries, non-binary envies. Thank you to Paris Marks for his time and his voice on this episode. Please go check out his podcast, Tech Won't Save Us, as well as his newsletter, which is called Disconnect. This podcast cannot be done without the support of NextGenMen, which you can support by subscribing to our online community at nextgenmen.ca slash join. This is Herman Vijegas, and we'll see you next time on Modern Manhood, Man vs. Machine.